You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Last week, we looked at days two to six of the creation week. So if you want to get your Bibles out and prepared, we're in Genesis chapter two. We're actually starting from very, towards the very end of chapter one this morning. But on days two, three and four of the creation week, light begins to sh- began to shine. Dry land appeared and the plants were created. And plants were created the day before the sun, moon and the stars were created. Interestingly, if uh, you're an evolutionist, I'm not sure how you... You fit that in, but uh, anyway, the fish and the birds and the wildlife and domestic animals were all created on days five and six. Then came the pinnacle of God's creation, his masterstroke, the creation of mankind in Adam and Eve. Now, there's a number of differences that we touched on last week and the number of similarities between mankind and the animal kingdom. For instance, uh, the earth was brought, the earth brought forth all the land-based animals, while Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. So that might explain to us some of the similarities in design and function and physiology and indeed even DNA between animals and humans. We come from the same raw materials. But there's one important difference in that animals came forth from the earth by a word of God, while Adam was created hands-on by God, fashioned from the dust of the earth. And Eve was created hands-on by a divine surgery performed on Adam. Now, there's an intimacy about the creative acts of Adam and Eve that is missing from the creation of the animal kingdom. It speaks volumes to me about the value that God puts on humanity. God didn't only just form Adam's lifeless body, though. He breathed into him the breath of life. And man became a living creature, the Bible tells us. Now, in the Hebrew language, some of you know that Genesis was, was written in and the old, most of the Old Testament was written in. Breath and spirit are the same word. So we could say that Adam became a living, breathing, physical and spiritual being at that point. Now, the intimacy of creation of Adam and Eve is not the only thing that speaks to me of our value as human beings. There's the repeated phrases and ideas that are found at the end of chapter 1 about being made in God's image that really put the seal on our value, on the value of humanity in God's sight. That's not said of anything else in all of creation. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. And that value is not just put on Christian humanity. I mean that every human being who has or is or will inhabit this planet Earth, is valuable in God's sight. For God so loved the world, John chapter 3 tells us. In fact, that love for humanity is the foundation for the strict penalties that God later institutes for killing another person. Accidental killing, manslaughter, demanded a penalty that was the equivalent of life in prison. Now, it wasn't quite as harsh as being confined to a prison cell, but it was very restrictive on the guilty party nonetheless. Premeditated killing, murder, required that the guilty party forfeit his own life as a penalty. Now, this isn't the place to go into the details of punishments and the rights and wrongs 
of a, our justice system, but suffice to say that humanity is valuable precisely because we are made in the image of God. And any marring of that image in some way is a direct attack on God. You can be sure that the devil, who Jesus called a murderer from the beginning, delights in the honour killings that have been prevalent in so many cultures for so many centuries. And he delights in abortion. And he delights now in euthanasia. They've both become so common in our modern Western culture that we turn a blind eye to it. That's enough introduction. Let's get to our text. We'll pick it up at the end of Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26. Excuse me, I'll just reposition a few things here. Genesis 1.26, we'll be reading right through to the end of chapter 2. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God rested. God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight to the sight and good for food the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. 
and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work, work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Last week, I briefly mentioned about this strange statement that God makes in the plural in verse 26 of chapter 1. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, who's God talking to here? Some people think he's talking to the angels, but nowhere in scripture does it tell us that we are made in the image of any angel. In fact, speaking of Jesus the man, it says you made him a little lower than the angels. Interestingly, the Bible never tells us either when the angels were created. It's completely silent on that matter, except to make clear that the angels are not eternal creatures. Therefore, they didn't exist before God began creation. Interestingly also, the Hebrew word for God in this text is a plural word. Now, you're all familiar from your high school or even primary school English with the singular and plural nouns, one dog, two dogs, child, children, person, people, singular, plural. The Hebrew word for God is El, simply spelt E-L, which means God. Not specifically the God we worship, but just God in general. For, so, for example, in the Old Testament, Dagon was the God, the El, of the Philistines. But right from the opening words of the Bible, God, our God, is spoken of in plural terms. Elohim is the word, the Hebrew word used. It's the plural of El. And here we have the first hint of the Trinity in the Bible. It's not explicit, to be sure, but it's a hint that gets filled out more and more as time goes on. Now, the first time that the Bible hints at the Trinity is right there in the very first verse of the Bible. And it won't be the last time. Now, assuming that the doctrine of the Trinity is true, then that means that there is a relationship within the Godhead. So this plural word Elohim suggests something that the image of God means. 
It means relationship. Now, while we're on the subject of Elohim being a relational God, maybe you noticed a change in the way that God is referred to between chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, he is Elohim God, somehow plural while still being singular. But beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2, it begins to speak of the Lord God, where Lord is spelled out with all capitals. L-O-R-D. Whenever you see that capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, it's the English translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. It's the name by which God reveals himself to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. I am Yahweh. And it's also the name Jesus claims for himself at the end of John chapter 8 when the Pharisees are so outraged that they try to stone him to death. If you grew up on the old King James Version of the Bible or some of the older translations, you'd be familiar with the word Jehovah, which is just an anglicised version of Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is a term that is used of God in relationship with his people. Yahweh is not a distant God. He's not unconnected and uncaring about his people. He's a God who is up close and personal with his people. And more than that, Yahweh is a name that means God is a covenant keeping God. He is a God who intends to keep his promises to his people. In fact, in a small reflection of the relational and Trinitarian nature of God, we're designed also to be in relationship with other people. It's not good that man should be alone. That's important to the foundation of marriage, of course, but it's no less important to our need to establish healthy relationships and support structures with other people. That's one of the reasons why people who isolate themselves often descend into mental illness and homelessness, get exploited at the hands of others suffer ill health and more. People who isolate themselves from other people put their own health, physical and mental, and their well-being at great risk. We're not designed to be alone. Part of being made in the image of God means that we are designed for relationship. Now we can, of course, find that relation in pets, for example. Certainly there's nothing remotely like coming home from work on a tough day to a dog wagging his tail, delirious with joy that you're home. A dog can lift the spirit of even the most downtrodden and depressed person. But a dog can't provide the kind of companionship needed for our mental health or our physical well-being or our spiritual encouragement. Dogs aren't designed to do that. Dogs won't help you count your blessings when you're most prone to wallowing in your misery. Dogs won't encourage you to give up junk food and eat more greens for your health. Dogs won't challenge you to sort out that dysfunctional family relationship. Dogs won't tell you to get out of bed and into church on a Sunday morning, or to pray and to read your Bible, or to spend time in the worship of God. You need a human companion to do that. Whether that's a good friend or a spouse, you need a human companion. It's not good that man should be alone. In fact, one of the reasons why God has given us the church 
is so that we can have relationship with other like-minded people, so that we can have support structures and encouragers and helpers with the same heart around us. Christians who isolate themselves from other Christians put their own spiritual health and well-being at great risk. I've said it before many times, and I'll say it to my dying breath. I've yet to see a, see a Christian remain spiritually healthy after they step away from the local church. But there's yet more to being created in the image of God than relationship, although that is probably one of the most important things. I mentioned last week that the difference between humans and animals was the ability to choose what to do about our reproductive future. Animals are driven to reproduce. We can choose or choose not to have children. We can choose or choose not to pass on our genes to future generations. More than that, we can even choose to take another person's children into our family and raise them as our own. Now, most of you know that I've done that myself. And I love Mel's children who have no blood relationship to me just as much as I love my own biological child. Where does that happen in the animal kingdom? On the rare occasions you see different animal species showing some sort of care for each other, it makes the nightly TV news report because it is so unusual. But it happens every day of the week in the human race. And witness the number of families that foster children or adopt complete strangers from foreign lands to remove those child, children, that child from misery and give them the prospect of a new life and new opportunities in a prosperous land like Australia. Again, that happens every day of the week somewhere in the world. Animals don't do that. Humans do, and they do it frequently. But guess who else adopts strangers into his family? God does. That's where we get the desire from. It wouldn't be natural inclination for us if we'd evolved from fish and pond slime and scum like that. It's natural desire for us because we are created in the image of God who loves relationship. There are other things we do because we're made in the image of God. We can reason and plan for the future. While animals will prepare for the next winter by stocking up on food supplies or fortifying their den against the elements, humans will prepare for a future 10 or 20 or 50 years down the track. We'll have a bank account for everyday use and another where we put money aside for a future emergency. We'll invest in the stock market or cryptocurrency or a startup with a view to funding our retirement at the other end of our life. No animals do that. We may even look for ways to invest that go beyond our lifetimes and provide for future generations. We set up trust funds for our grandchildren, or if we're very wealthy, we may fund, fund a scholarship at a college to enable an unrelated person a hundred years into the future to gain an education. Which animal does that? Humans contribute to charities too. We'll give away our hard-earned dollars to causes from which we gain no personal benefit. World Vision, Save the Children, Child Sponsorship in Far-Flung Countries. 
even the World Wildlife Fund or Sea Shepherd. Which animals do that? Humans derive great pleasure from music and art and literature. We read to increase our knowledge of things which have no direct impact on our survival, but merely which interests us and brings us pleasure. Humans have hobbies, jigsaws, woodwork, car restoring, astronomy, collecting antiques. Which animals do that? We'll submit to 12 years of education at our parents' insistence and then make our own decision to go back for another four or six or ten years of study in subjects that interest us or that help us to get into our preferred career. Which animals do that? Humans do, because we're made in the image of God. In fact, which animals even change jobs? The primary job for an animal is to find food, shelter and safety. Then when the time comes, to breed. That's all animals do. Humans may start their working career sweeping floors in their local fast food joint and aspire to become a plumber. And when they become a plumber, they may start their own business and move into managing other plumbers instead of the hands-on dirty work. And they may build a successful business, a multi-million dollar business, and throw it all in to go teaching kids in a remote outback settlement. Name me one animal that does that sort of thing. Humans can think beyond themselves to the plight of others. We can in some way enter into the suffering of another person and help them carry a burden or weep with them in their grief. Even with people we don't know or don't have anything in common with and sometimes even with people we don't like, we can do this. Where does this ability come from? Certainly not from any animal nature within us. Humans have abilities and characteristics that animals just do not have. And we have them because we are made in the image of God. There are so many other characteristics of God that we share that are absent in animals. Humour, sensitivity, joy, love of music. Creativity, the desire to learn another language, curiosity about other cultures, the willingness to risk our own lives in the defence of another person or in the cause of truth. Those features are conspicuously absent in the animal kingdom. What person in their right mind can imagine that we are merely more evolved animals? That we have monkeys and fish and bacteria as our ancestors? How can evolution explain all of these characteristics? How does the animal instinct instinct to pass our genes along to future generations account for these behaviours that in many cases are contrary to animal instinct? It can't, of course. It can only be explained by the truth that mankind is created by God as the pinnacle of his creation, created in his image. It can only be explained by the special relationship that we have with him as creatures made in his image. But that's not all we can do because we're made in God's image. We can worship. 
No animals seek for someone or something to worship, but it's built into us humans. Sadly, that worship is frequently wrongly directed. We can worship abstract things like success or fame. We can worship money or comfort. We can worship rock stars or movie stars. And sometimes our worship is even directed to the worship of animals, as if animals are somehow higher than humans. Witness the worship of cows that is rampant in Hindu religion. Everyone wants to worship someone or something. We've been built that way from the beginning. But there is, of course, only one appropriate object of worship, the God in whose image we've been made. Now humans, because we're made in the image of God, are rational beings. We have the ability to think and to plan and to make judgments in any situation. We can weigh up risks and consequences and determine the best course of action or decide to take no course of action at all. We are spiritual beings. There is a part of us that knows and yearns for something more, something deeper. That's why we look for something to worship. And we are moral beings. We know right from wrong. We don't necessarily always choose right. But when we choose wrong... Our conscience bothers us. Guilt troubles us. Shame niggles us. And the consequences of ignoring our conscience lie all around us. Mental health problems, broken relationships, violence, isolation. In fact, this broken world we live in is a consequence of our first parents, Adam and Eve, choosing right choosing wrong instead of right. We'll see that as we get into the next chapter of Genesis. Mankind is the culmination, the pinnacle of God's creation. Adam was that. He was the pinnacle of God's creation, but he was more. Adam was also the beginning of human history. As we read further in the Bible, we see in Adam the pattern of humanity. Created in the likeness of God, but fallen, rebellious, at enmity with God due to sin. Now look at Genesis. We haven't yet seen the fall. We've only seen the perfection of creation. We haven't come to the point where Adam rebels and the separation from God begins. We'll see more of that, of course, as I said in the next chapter of Genesis. But we know from experience that something is broken. There's something broken about this world, something broken about our relationships with others, something broken about our relationship with God. Have you ever stopped to think that because Adam was created in the image of God, then so have been all his descendants, including you and I? But that also means there is one very special descendant who has been created in the image of God. Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want you to imagine that Jesus Christ is a created being. Rather, he is the creator of everything. But Jesus, in his natural state as God, is spirit. He had no human body. But when he became 
When he came as a man 2,000 years ago, he came in a human body. He took on human flesh. And his human body is created in the image of God too. He is not some separate being, something different or distinct from us. He wore the same human flesh that we wear. He experienced the same aches and pains, the same weariness, the same drudgery that we experience. And more, he experienced the same temptations that we experience, yet without sin. Adam faced temptation and failed. We face temptation and we fail over and over again. But Jesus, when he faced temptation, succeeded. And thank God, thank him that he did. For that's the foundation of our salvation today, the basis of the restoration of our relationship to God. Paul will explain in Romans chapter 5 that Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. In the coming chapters of Genesis, we'll see the beginnings of the solution to that problem. But Paul goes on to explain in Romans chapter 5, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift of the grace of that one man of Jesus Christ abounded for many. For as by the one man's disobedience, as by Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. These opening chapters of the Bible of Genesis are foundation foundational to the whole of the Bible. The whole Bible is a story of God acting to restore that broken relationship now through Jesus Christ. And it's also a story of God working to restore the perfection of that original creation. One day, that work will be complete. Not yet, but one day. Friends, we're the beneficiaries of that free gift of righteousness that Adam threw away by his sin. We are the beneficiaries if we have put our trust in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that yet, I urge you to do it now, to do it today. Call out to him, the creator of the first man, Adam, and ask him to breathe new life into you as he breathed life into Adam originally. We are all made in the image of God, which means we are made to have relationship with God. As a Christian, as someone has put their trust in Jesus Christ, you have that relationship restored. One day it will be restored in complete perfection in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be a river running down the centre of this new Jerusalem, as Revelation tells us. And there will be a tree of life for us to eat from every day of eternity. We look forward to that day. We look forward to God restoring what he began in the beginning, the perfection of that original creation, recreated in perfection, 
for us to enjoy and to enjoy relationship with the creator of the universe for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the creation, the perfection of the creation initially. Lord, we look back at uh, at what Adam did in that garden and how he turned his back on you and we look at our own lives, Lord, and how we too turn our back on you. And Lord, we repent of that and we ask for and we receive your forgiveness in Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, the one who created life in the beginning and by his blood brings new life today. We thank you for these things, Father. We thank you that we are made in your image. We are not evolved from lower life forms, but, Lord, that we share things amongst ourselves and with you, characteristics of you, Lord, that set us apart from all creation. Lord, would you help us to use those uh, characteristics wisely that we can benefit our friends, our family, our nation, that we can benefit ourselves and our relationship with you, Lord. Thank you for your salvation, Jesus. We pray that you do that work, that work of new creation in those of our extended family and friendship circles that don't yet know you. Bring them to the understanding and the truth that you are a God who is, who was, who always will be. And to put their trust in you, Jesus Christ, to worship you forever. Thank you for these things. In his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.